I'm going to read scripture and then I'm going to introduce our speaker for today. So if you could turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. It's found on page 562. 562. Sorry, 362. I need glasses. I should have them with me, but I don't. And the bulletin says page 362. It's actually page 367, 387. We're all over the map on this one. So I'm going to verify my source, my Bible right here. It says page 387, okay? It's a different Bible. Oh, my goodness. Here, let's go this way. 2 Kings 5, okay? That's the easiest way. <laughs> 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the men come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord as God, wave his hand over the the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Naaman was watching too much TV. Arnot, Abana, and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than any of the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, 
and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is God's word. Well, today we are really privileged to welcome John Fuller to our pulpits. John has spent a lifetime serving with OMF, and he's currently the uh, National Director for OMF Canada. He is a good friend of Knox, and we are delighted that he has contributed two of his daughters to our church fellowship, who serve us in uh, wonderful ways. Katie and Emily are a great part of our fellowship here. So, John, welcome, and let me pray for you. Welcome to Knox. Father in heaven, we pray for John. We are so grateful for his ministry with OMF, for his life of serving your mission. And now as he brings your word, God, we pray for your anointing upon him. May your Holy Spirit fill him and his words, and may they be uh, directed right at our hearts so that we might more effectively serve your mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Well, it's great to be with you here. Knox feels like home in lots of ways. My parents are worshiping here now, and uh, so it's, it's good to be back in the family. I appreciate very much the display of generosity very practically uh, put out here. I'm going to try not to trip over the KD and kill myself. The hazards of speaking. Knox has also been historically a wonderful friend of OMF. Uh, many of you will know that the first group of uh, North American missionaries that went to China with Hudson Taylor in 1888 were commissioned from Knox, not from this building, but from this congregation. So we feel a strong sense of companionship and fellowship here. I, uh, I want to take you to a story that I love, and it's a story that's quite familiar. I would imagine that even if you had trouble finding the page, you know the story of Naaman. A tremendous story of a man who was the enemy of God's people. But he had, a, he had an issue, he had a problem. He was a leper, he was an outcast. And he hears through his wife that there is a prophet who might be able to address this health problem. And so he sends a letter to the king of Israel, and, and you know the story, the king kind of goes, what's going on, is this all? Because this is very odd, right? This is the enemy asking for help. And uh, Naaman shows up with a bunch of presents, and uh, the king gets all uptight about how this is some kind of ploy or subterfuge. And uh, the prophet Elisha says, look, we can deal with this. There is a God. And Naaman is directed to the prophet. And the prophet says, go and take a bath. And uh, my kids, we used to read this story as a, as, as a family, and they used to call it the, uh, the story of the smart servants and the dumb masters. Because, of course, you know, the king doesn't get it right, Naaman doesn't get it right. The servants are the ones that kind of step in and say, look, you know, this is not a big deal. Let's, uh, let's do the washing in the water and let's see what happens. And Naaman does, follows the directions, and he's healed. He's healed. And he comes back to Naaman, and you have this tremendous statement where, the prophet, where Naaman says to the prophet, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is the captain of the army that is the enemy of Israel making this very public statement to God's glory. 
It's a fantastic story of how God intervenes to take someone very unexpected and transform them into a follower, a disciple. And you're kind of going, well, that was great, John, and you've taken up two minutes, so we're done, right? Well, you know, this is a passage that many have preached on, I've preached on, and I love the story, but I want to suggest to you that actually one of the great things about this story is the question, how did this all happen? How did this happen? How did this enemy of God and God's people end up in a situation where he was prepared to make this statement? And this whole story hinges on one person, one character whose name we don't even know. Because without the servant girl, there would be no Naaman standing before his people to say, there is no other God. I love the stories of scripture where we see these unnamed heroes. One of my joys in heaven is gonna be to look up this girl and find out more about her. We don't, as I said, know her name. I'm gonna call her Sarah because it's really hard to talk about someone for half an hour without a name. Could be her name, I don't know. Find out when we get to heaven. But I would like to suggest to you that Sarah had many good reasons to not say anything to her mistress about a God in Israel. In fact, she had no good reason to say that. And I want to talk with you, I'm going to suggest four things that Sarah overcame in order to, create, to present this testimony, in order to say those words. The first is this. Sarah was away from home. She was far away from family, friends, the community that she knew and, and loved. She was on her own in a distant and foreign land. It's not easy to be away from home. My parents, who are here, put me on a plane when I was six years old to go to a boarding school. And I remember those early nights, lying in bed in a dorm with 20 other little boys, crying into my pillow, trying hard not to let anyone else hear I was crying, not realizing that they were all crying too. My boarding school experience was largely positive. But it was hard to be away from my parents, my family. Many of you here understand what it means, what it's like to be away from home. And when we're away from home, we tend to focus on our own needs. We tend to think of our own concerns. We don't easily find it in ourselves to think about the other person, the other challenge. And yet, there is no mission unless we are prepared to go away from home. There is no mission unless we're prepared to step outside of this comfortable place we're in. We see that, John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Christ, the incarnation, Christ came, left his heavenly home, came to our place, took on human flesh. Philippians 2 outlines how Christ gave up his rights in order to come and live amongst us, take on all that meant to be a man. Mission requires that we're willing to have God take us from what is comfortable, what is home. Knox is a wonderful place. We love the worship here. It's great fellowship. But I want to just suggest to you that God did not give you this wonderful church so you can enjoy being here. God gathers us as his people in order to scatter us back out. He gathers us 
for the sake of those who aren't here. And if church becomes a place that we stay to be comfortable, then we miss the point. And God took Sarah, this little girl, took her away from her home, placed her in an uncomfortable context, and Sarah chose to be there. We were on holiday at the end of uh, early September, and we were talking about actually being on holiday and not letting my email um, interfere, and my wife pointed to the license plate of the New Brunswick car ahead of us, said, look at that. That's God's message to us. You know what the New Brunswick license plates say? Be in this place. But the point is, the be in this place that God has for us is not just this church. It's his broken world. It's being in the world as God is in the world. Peter makes this point in 1 Peter. He says to his, the people he was writing to, scattered Christians, he says, you feel like you're aliens and strangers. Well, you are aliens and strangers. You're chosen by God. Your true home is in heaven. Our true calling is to be God's people, to be called, to be responsive, and to live God's gospel amongst those who don't know him. And that's not an issue of geography. It's an issue of being willing to be outside of our comfort zone. Secondly, Sarah was not only away from home, she was actually, she was with the enemy. She was with a group of people that she had been raised to mistrust to hate, to fear. She was with the Arameans who were, for the people of Israel, the enemy of that day. I have some understanding of this. Years ago, my wife and I worked in the Philippines, and God had called us there to work with Muslims. And we started our language study up in the north, and then we moved down to the south. And I remember speaking to some of our Filipino friends up in the north where there are very few Muslims. And we said, well, you know, we're going to be moving in a few months to the south. They said, oh, don't go there. I said, why not? They said, oh, no, it's dangerous in the south. Well, what do you mean? I said, that's where the Muslims live. Yeah, we know. We're, we're hoping to live with some Muslims. Don't live with Muslims. Muslims are dangerous people. They're bad people. They're kidnappers. They're holdoppers. They'll stab you in the back even if you think they're friends. I said, really? He said, yes. I said, have you ever met a Muslim? They said, no, but that's just who they are. And we laugh, but that's how prejudice works. We grow up on stories, we hear things, and as a result, we put up barriers. We allow those barriers to keep us from being present with the people that God loves. Peter found that out, right? Acts 10. God had to use a bunch of dreams and some weird food and, and to challenge Peter to realize that God, yes, God did want him to go and visit that Gentile house and spend time with Cornelius where everything in Peter's mind, heart, soul, worldview said, I as a Jew should not do this. And God said, don't let anyone call that unclean which I have made clean. And Peter at the end of that story in Acts 10 says, now I realize that God loves men from every nation, from every people. So there is a huge challenge for us to be willing to have God take us and place us amongst those for whom we have no natural love and may in fact have been taught to hate and fear. I had the privilege of working with Filipinos in the southern Philippines 
There are huge barriers of fear and prejudice between Filipino Christians and Filipino Muslims. In fact, I didn't call myself a Christian in the Philippines when I was with my Muslim friends. You're going, what? Cristiano, for a Muslim in the Philippines, means someone who eats pork, worships idols, and kills Muslims. That's what Cristiano means when I say that to a Muslim. And I didn't eat pork because I chose not to at that point. I didn't worship idols, and I didn't kill Muslims. So for them, I wasn't a Cristiano. I was a Tagasunud in the Isa al-Masi. They'd all go, what's that? And say, it just means literally, I'm a follower of Jesus the Messiah. And then we could talk about what that means. Because I needed to overcome prejudice. I had the privilege of watching a young lady. We had been involved in dialogue with her. She had a heart for mission. And her mission agency challenged her to come and work on our team. She said, but she was with New Tribe. She said, we only work with tribal people. And her boss said, well, today we're starting to work with Muslims, and you're the first one. She said, I'm not going to work with Muslims. I can't do that. She was raised in a part of the Philippines where Muslims and Christians had fought for hundreds of years. Her family did not want her to come, told this story upstairs a few months ago. She ended up getting on a boat. And I remember standing on the pier as that boat docked in Davao City and watching her come down, and I knew what it cost her because she fully expected to die. Three years later, she left our community. There were 37 mothers of the preschool kids that she had taught at the airport to see her off. And I heard a taxi driver say to one of these mothers, who is this girl? Because they were in tears. She must be a very close friend. And this Muslim mother said, she's not friend, she's family. Because Mari Carr had overcome her fears and her prejudice in order to be with the people God had called her to love. But as I said, this is not just about geography. Not hearing this? It's on, but that's okay. I'll stay here. Try not to trip over the KD. That'll probably help. Years ago, as a, uh, as a seminary student, Tyndale, I was taking a course, a class, and we were assigned to uh, spend three hours in downtown Toronto. I thought, I can do that. And then the professor said, between the hours of 11 and 2 in the morning. I thought, hmm, I haven't really done that. Okay, so I got together with a buddy, and we started walking down Yonge Street about midnight. I don't know if you've walked Yonge Street at midnight, but it is a bit of a different environment. We were walking down Yonge Street, and God said to me, go into that door. I turned to my buddy and I said, I think God wants us to go in the door. And my buddy said, why? I said, I don't know. I don't know how it is with you, but does God tell you why when he asks you to do things? I really wish he would. It would make it a lot easier, but I rarely get the why. I just get the go. I said, I don't know, but I think God wants us to go in that door. He looked at me and he said, all right. So we walked in the store, just shopper. I opened the door. There were tables and candles and there was a bar and glasses hanging. And I thought, okay, it's a bar. And then I realized that there were only men in this bar. And I realized I was standing in a gay bar. And I turned around and I walked out. And as I'm walking down the street, God says to me, why did you leave? I said, but God, they're sinners. God said, and you? And then God said to me, you couldn't stay in the presence for even three minutes of people that I have loved 
from eternity. And I realized it wasn't about my theology, it was about my gut. It was about my prejudice. It's not about geography, mission is about our heart and God will call us to be with people that he loves that we don't. And God called Sarah to be with people that she had no natural love, in fact, every reason to hate and distrust. And Sarah somehow overcame that prejudice, that fear, enough to want Naaman to be healed. Do you understand how remarkable that is? And it gets worse. Because you see, Sarah was not just away from home. She was not just with the enemy. But she was a captive. She was a hostage. I used to think growing up that maybe she was taken very young. And she didn't really remember what happened. Because we know, not from this story, but we know from other stories of the time what happened. These raiders from the Arameans or the Moabites or whatever would come in on their horses. They would sweep into the country. They would usually come around harvest time and they would either burn the crops or harvest them. They would kill the men and they would take the women and the children and they would take them away into slavery. That was the pattern of the day. And it's almost certain that that's what happened to Sarah. And we know she was old enough to remember. How do we know that? Because Sarah remembered that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal Naaman. And if she was old enough to remember that, then she remembered the circumstances of her being taken from her family and her village and her community. We don't know what happened. Did she see her parents killed? Did she see people she knew destroyed? Did she, her home? We don't know. We do know that it was a traumatic incident in her life, which led then to her being put up on the blocks in Damascus as a slave to be sold. And worse yet, the guy that buys her is the captain of the army that swept into her home and stole her away after killing her people. That's whose house she's in. Do not miss that. She's in the home of the enemy. It hurts. It's hard to love anyone when you have been brutally treated. Years ago, I was preaching on this passage. I finished preaching and sat down. The, the youth event, the band was playing. It was very loud. And a young lady slipped up beside me, sat down, and just began to cry. And through her tears, she said, my name is Sarah. I didn't know what to say. I sat. We wept together. Didn't know why she was crying. And then she shared her story. She said, I love God. Or I try to. But I haven't been to church in two years. This is my first time back. I believe God wants me to serve him. But I can't trust him because of what my father did to me as a child. You see, when we suffer, when we experience abuse and pain, it keeps us from being able to trust God. 
It makes it harder for us to reach out to others. And God wants to heal that. He wants to step into our lives and he wants to give us a wholeness and a health. He wants to give us the grace to forgive so that we can act in mission for others, even those who have hurt and persecuted and abused us. The team I led in the Philippines included a young man named Ray Uel, passionate, young, a little arrogant, a little cocky, a little full of himself, but just loved to get out there. He was part of our team, and he'd throw himself into anything. We worked together, and he grew in his faith. Eventually, he ended up in a Muslim community where no one else would go. That was what Reuel loved, to be where nowhere else would go, for God's glory. He had that right. He held on to God's glory. He married a lovely young lady named Teresa. They had a little daughter named Rejoice. Couldn't find a place to stay in this Muslim community. There are seven mosques, no Christians. It's a dangerous place. Someone said, well, there is that one house. It was a big house. It was vacant. Rayuel said, well, why can't I live there? They said, no one wants to live there. Why? Because someone committed suicide there and the house is haunted. Rayuel said, in the name of Jesus, we're going to clean that house out. And they scrubbed that house down on their knees, physically and spiritually, and they took residence in this house. Just living there was a testimony. They loved the people. They began to touch lives. And one day, a man came up to Reuel, standing on the street, shot him in the stomach. He fell down. The man had turned away, saw Reuel, wasn't dead, came back, shot him in the head, and kicked his body into the shape of a cross and walked away. I was in Canada at the time. I remember the day I got the news. Teresa ran to Reuel's body and held his head in her hands and watched him die. She told me later that she prayed at that moment that she would have the grace to be God's person to the community that watched. And a week later, she stood up in front of that community and she said, I want you to know that I forgive the man who did this. I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know that I'm not going away. And she didn't. The power of a life lived unexpectedly, redemptively in the midst of pain and persecution is what God's people are about. A year ago, Miriam, 10-year-old Syrian refugee, you may have seen this on the news, in a camp, fled from Mosul, which is now under the battle. And a, a reporter asked her, What happened? And she told some of the stories. She said, so do you hate Muslims? She said, no. She said, I forgive them for what they did. It was wrong. It was bad. But Jesus teaches us to forgive. Sarah, this little servant girl, had chosen to forgive Naaman and to love Naaman enough that she went to her mistress and said, you know, there's a prophet who can heal 
Naaman. She had every reason to get up in the morning. In fact, I think this would have been my prayer. God, thank you that you have given Naaman leprosy to punish him for what he has done. Wouldn't that be the natural response? But Sarah reached out in love. Lastly, and easy to overlook, but very, very important, Sarah was far away from home. She was with the enemy. She was a captive and a hostage. She was also a servant. You think, nah. But wait a minute. That fact is key to this story. Let me ask you this. Why do you think that Naaman's wife took Sarah's words seriously? Why do you think that Naaman took on a career potentially ending action, took a lot of money, went to the captain, the king of the enemy? Why did he do these things? It's remarkable. Why did all that happen? Let me suggest to you that the reason Naaman and his wife acted on the words of that little servant girl was because she was a good servant. Not a bad servant, not a useless servant, but she was in fact a good servant to Naaman's wife. And her actions, her service, had demonstrated integrity which gave word, weight to her testimony. We need to look at that very seriously. Because how we live, God uses to allow us to speak and be heard. Peter says that when he says, live such good lives amongst the pagans that even though they hate you, they will come to respect your words and to give glory to your Father in heaven. First Peter chapter 2. Years ago, I was traveling in China, and I was uh, with a group that was celebrating the 10th anniversary of their sending short-term and longer-term people into China to serve the people of China. These were professionals, doctors, lawyers, business people who were coming in to serve, to, to do whatever they could to teach in universities, work in hospitals, and because we were traveling kind of an anniversary tour, we had lots of banquets and lots of good food and lots of speeches. And we were on the 29th floor of a large building in a big university in a main part of China. And at this banquet, there were speeches being made. And uh, I don't speak Mandarin, but the, the interpreter sitting beside me said, there's a pause in the midst of interpretation. They said, hmm, the person speaking, a, a, a key leader at the university said to us, thank you for sending the people you have sent to our country to serve so well. Their lives have had a powerful impact on our students. And then he said this, in 40 years of teaching here in the university, we have not been able to develop the character that we see in the people that you have sent us. The testimony of a life well-lived 
and words well spoken at a key time. So, who is your Naaman? Sarah was willing. She accepted that God placed her far away from home, that God placed her in a place which was uncomfortable, which was with people who she didn't naturally trust. Sarah was willing to let God heal the pain of her past so that she could be someone who reached out and loved to those who by every human standard she should hate. And Sarah was willing to serve those people well and faithfully. So who is your Naaman? Who is it that God has in your life? Because missions is not about geography. It's about our hearts. Mission is about being willing to let God place you outside of your comfort zone with people that he loves, that he needs you and I to serve and to love for his glory. That might well take you to the other side of the world, but it might just take you to a fellow student that everyone else dislikes. It might just take you to a neighbor that annoys us all. It'll take you, though, to people who God loves, who is your Naaman. Father, thank you for the huge privilege we have to be your ambassadors, to be sent by you into the lives of people who don't know you yet, for your glory. Father, I pray you would give us the grace, the forgiveness, that you gave Sarah, and that you would take us into the lives of Naaman so that they might one day say, as he did, there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.